Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the May 19, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. Before I haul into my program lineup, I wanted to acknowledge that my recurrent guest, UCI Theater Director Jane Page, recently received the Professor of the Year Award campus-wide. I'm so glad that her enterprising, engaging, and enlightening ways caught the attention of her peers and of management. Congratulations to a deserving professional. Now to the program, my first guest will be Jan Meslin. Director of Social Change Development for Civic, that is Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement. She'll talk about how immigration reform affects what her organization does and must do for detainees in isolation who've committed no crime. Civic is also in the middle of a campaign, a fundraiser, toward which you can feel free to contribute. Then, Charlie Bleck, local chapter president of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence, returns to speak about the new law that he says is a game changer, the California Gun Violence Restraining Order, adopted in the aftermath of the Isla Vista shootings that took place one year ago this coming Saturday. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My first guest is Jan Meslin, the Director of Social Change Development for Civic Community Initiatives for Immigrants in Confinement. Civic's charter is ending the isolation and abuse of people in detention through visiting, making those detainee stories part of the public discourse, and advocacy. Previously on Ask a Leader, we had the pleasure of Christine Bialho, as well as she appeared on the Heather McCoy Show. Jan is here today to bring us up to date on what the impact of changes in immigration policy have had on undocumented individuals detained around the country. And we'll, bring, we'll make it local too, folks, don't worry. Jan is a founder of Friends of Orange County Detainees, which Bravo Jan, has grown since 2012, becoming one of the largest immigration detention visitation programs in the country, helping to end isolation at Orange County's three public jails. Jan's advocacy for individuals and families separated by the U.S. immigration system includes her involvement as a board member for Orange County Community Congregation Organization, and she has also she chairs the Immigrant Justice Team for the Unitarian Universalist Justice Ministry based in Sacramento. Recently t- retired from teaching, Jan completed her BA at Augsburg College, Minneapolis, her Master's of Science at Indiana University, and her Doctor of Education at the University of Houston. She joins me in studio this morning today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jan Meslin. Thank you, Claudia. I'm happy to be here. And there, Jan is a tough one. That you, when I ever, every about fifty percent of the time I call her, she is about to board a plane. She's getting around <laughs> and making it happen. We'll talk about what that latest flight uh, was about uh, just yesterday evening. You've just returned. Uh, and speaking of flights, you've just returned from yesterday's annual third Monday of May National Immigration Lobby Day. What's the report? And who did you get to see? And how did they receive you? We were well-received everywhere. There were hundreds of us in Sacramento for the annual Immigrant Lobby Day. It's the third time I've gone. Um, And we were there. The California Immigration Policy Center puts this on every year. We were there to, they they pick a platform, and we lobbied for three bills and then the one California budget. Um, The Orange County legislators I got to visit were uh, my own assembly member, Bill Bro, who's a new assembly member, and also uh, my senator, Pat Bates, who's also a new senator. Um, I got to visit both of their offices, and um, we were well-received. The bills we were lobbying for, I, they haven't decided, but they, they listen to us, and they want to research these bills. The main one, um, the one I'm most passionate about, is Senate Bill 4, which is called Health for All, which will um, create 
separate health exchanges if the federal government won't won't let California buy into the, the Affordable Care Act? Because right now in the Affordable Care Act, all people without documents are excluded, including people with work permits and so on. Even if they're millionaires, they're not allowed to buy health insurance. So they tend to not go to the doctor, and then they, they, they end up going to the emergency room if they really um, are threatened for their lives, and that ends up costing so much money. So um, by adding them to their own exchange, it which would mirror the Affordable Care Act, it would really end up not costing, maybe saving money. Right. Because all these people, and people are dying. As you probably know, there's in, citizens <laughs> who don't have health insurance themselves. They're, they estimate 10,000 people a year, somewhere between ten and 20,000 die. So um, it would just, I believe health care should be human rights. So that's not a, really the immigration issue, but it combines immigration and health care, two of my passions, so. All right, and so and that's a the public yeah. health consideration too. If not everybody yeah. has a, a, a so health care coverage, then there those can be a larger public health problem, infectious yeah. diseases. And right, you said there you was want that drain people on the that treasury. work with you want people who work with you at McDonald's or, or so you. on. Yep, to be um, healthy. Well, that's well. Congratulations! So you you get uh, you're probably starting to get ready for next year's May 2016 immigration. So <laughs> no, but it's, it's national, <laughs> but really. so everybody was turning out all over the country for that. Well, this was a California statewide okay. thing, so we were just visiting so? California legislators. But you know, it's interesting because um, I met a lot of people, and there were people there I knew already, and. And it's interesting how many of them also visit immigrants in the jails around the state of California because we have so many um, immigrants here in the jails. We have visitation programs now. Civic has about 35 visitation programs throughout the country. Oh, wow. Some in Northern California, the, the trend is to build these big new private prisons like Bakersfield. They just built a big new one. Some of those people were there. But anyway, it just when you visit... Um, and it all becomes personal and you make friends, you want to do more. And so that's probably why they were in Sacramento, a lot of these people. It kind of changes you. And real, we realize that we're all one world and we want, <laughs> we want everybody to, to be treated right. When we learn what our country is doing, a lot of us, we, we try to fix the system. So let's move now into some, there's been a lot of, I mean, immigration policy has been Superbly dynamic. It's all. It's constantly changing. Uh, Obama had uh, uh, initiated the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, DACA for short, and then la after that, just right after the uh, 2014 elections, he then presented the Childhood or the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans and Lawful Permanent Residents, it's known as DAPA. Um, what Obama giveth the federal, the Texas Federal District Court judge taketh away for the time being. So how does that affect dockets? It sort of changes the the, the milepost of who's eligible and, and it with and tell us what it does for DAPA as well. Okay. Well this was November of twenty fourteen, like you said, his executive action because our US Congress really needs to act to make some permanent changes. So many agree that the system is broken. They're just not agreeing how to fix it. And and I, I it or really I it might have had enough votes to pass, but it wouldn't even get to the floor of the House. So either agreeing not to or, or agreeing just yeah. to let it uh, sort of suspend it. I'm thinking it's a little more passive aggressive sometimes when I when I watch Maybe the kinds is, of hollow arguments that are used. It, it just not attend to it at all. But anyway, President Obama did execute this action in November 14th, partly because the the young dreamers, the the DACA certified people and the young people are amazing the movement and they inspire me so much they just won't let up and you know and it, they want they were working for their parents also which is why DAPA kind of came around however um, the deferred action for parental arrivals they need to have a US citizen children and so some of the dreamers parents themselves are not able to benefit by that that's one thing but so it still leaves out a lot of people we need a national immigration reform with a pathway to citizenship by by congress to make to help everybody now right now um it was stopped by a texas judge the this next thing that the executive action took and um and i think any day now because president obama in my opinion didn't do anything illegal and that's coming out now and it's it, it there's been an emergency um, 
appeal and it looks like it's about to get overturned and so we have been helping a lot of people OCO is one of the groups that has been helping a lot of people get prepared for when there is DACA and DAPA because there's a new DACA the new DACA that was part of this same executive action will be three years and have no age limit whereas the old DACA was two years and had an age limit of 30 years old. So Since I know, yeah. there was some, been some on It'll my show a lot of people. that aging out was a real problem for them, and they would have been in mm-hmm. l- uh, limbo like like never imagined before. So that's, so it, that's yeah. improved then in terms of... Uh, yeah. And is your sense that it's a bipartisan support for that... Uh, with withdrawing the the age limit or well we'll, we'll see we'll, 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 check, really we'll circle know. back to that um, at, at another show because yeah but in Orange County as you know we have so many immigrants mostly of Latino descent but many, uh, many of them are documented and many Asians that's true that's yes. true yeah many documented people Asians and Latinos and um, probably other groups also many that are undocumented and many that are documented and uh, this these kinds of things help them all because there are many mixed families that have both and so um, so in Orange County right now, we have about 1,000 people that are in our jails that are under control of ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And these are the people that Civic concentrates on, the people that are in detention. And let me correct you a little bit. You Please said... backed up. Yeah. I'm, yeah. That... Um, some of them have committed crimes. You said that they haven't committed crimes, and maybe you didn't mean all of them, but some of them have committed crimes. But if they have, they have served the time out for that crime if, if, okay. if they needed to. And then they stay in jail, but they're under ICE custody rather than in the criminal justice system if they did commit a crime. Many of them haven't, but some of them have. So, But let's, yeah. be, but let's be really honest and rigorous about this. Yeah. The crimes they committed might have been a parking violation. Might have been Might have been. I mean, it's a... Yeah. I mean, the, nothing that uh, would require an, uh, a purgatory of a, mm-hmm. an endless detainee uh, detention no. uh, in a, no. a medium maximum security facility. So it's uh, and, and 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 an isolation because that's the key word in the the group that you're advocating for. When you're in isolation uh, in detention, you have confounded your whole case a great deal more. It, and so. and uh, in my opinion, they're all in isolation, really, or. Being in a jail, they don't have any access to the outside. They, you know, they, they, they have, oftentimes they have jobs when they go in there and then they lose their jobs. Sometimes they're the sole breadwinner and so their families really are suffering. And um, we learn all this as, as we visit. Many of them speak English because um, they've been here for many years. Now, recently in Orange County, we've seen an influx of more asylum seekers, and these people have, for the most part, not committed a crime. Um, From Africa, we're seeing a lot of people from Africa, Bangladesh, and so on coming. And what we see in the the immigration detention centers around the country, each population's a little different, and I'm not sure how they decide how Mm -hmm. to move people around where, but recently we've been seeing more asylum seekers. And so our visitors, you know, uh, don't all speak Spanish and don't all speak English, but we try to get a mix so we can we can meet the needs of the people. The, especially the asylum seekers, their families are oftentimes so far away. They have no support from the community at all, no families. So um, it's important to get some visits. See, that's being isolated. They, they, and then because they're they're not in criminal custody they lose all the rights of a criminal they have no right to a free attorney they have no right to a free phone call they have no right to a sentence they are fighting their case that's why these people are here that's they're not willing to sign their deportation papers so a lot of the people are in deportation proceedings they do have a right to a court appearance and try to fight their deportation but um, but with a, but with two hands be tied behind their backs, they really and they don't have a right to work or to take classes like criminals do in the jails. So they really are very bored oftentimes, and a lot of times their families don't even know where they are. So that's one thing we can help them do is link up with their families, and then this direct support fund, which is really why we're here. I don't know yes, how much we time are. we have, but we're going <laughs> to give it all. We have we a way of helping. We have a way of helping. Okay. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, you're t- tuned in to Ask a Leader on Radio KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest for this portion, of, for this whole half of this hour, is my guest Jan Meslin, Director of Social Change at Civic, the National Visitation Network, which provides a community presence and independent oversight of the U.S. immigration detention system, which you heard, folks, is for a, a, 
a, a population that has absolutely no rights, and that also that translates to no resources whatsoever for uh, maintaining sanity and maintaining uh, and making their case for uh, why they should not be deported and why should their detention be uh, ended. So uh, we're we're talking about uh, this support. Let's go in to some of this financial part here. You just launched a fundraiser. It was a successful event in mm -hmm. Costa Mesa mm -hmm. on Sunday afternoon. And now that's going to, for 90 days, you're going to be reaching out for, the, there's a little bit of a silent auction continuing on your website and isolation.org. Uh -huh. And so people can go there and see if there's anything left. Or I, I want to say, while we're still talking a little bit about the, the language issue, while people are looking at financial contributions, if somebody's listening, this mm -hmm. or the podcast folks, that you, you have a language skill that you want to know uh, if it's a useful, Jan Meslin will let you know that they have a detainee that could use your language uh, resources. So uh, that's yes, please. Uh, because it's, you're talking about new languages that are showing up with these asylum seekers in Orange County uh, and anybody listening anywhere else in your uh, local areas. So this is an important resource while we talk about financial resources. We'll segue back now to the fundraiser. So people have a chance to help with this uh, crowdfunding uh, activity. So tell us all about that, every <laughs> detail. This uh, is it. Well, um, you know, the, some of us have been able to support people that we visit by actually putting money on their accounts so they can buy a phone card. They, they tell us about they that have phone. To make, yeah, it that's costs, uh -huh. it's atrociously it expensive. It costs so much money. Um, $5 a minute it sometimes? Yes. It costs, in Orange County, at most of the facilities, it costs three fifty just to connect, and then it's $0.99 cents a minute after that. So this is a whole other issue is these private phone companies uh, throughout the country. There's different ones, but it's not affordable to make to call your family. And so um, and so we can help and, uh, by putting some money on their accounts. However, a lot of people that visit can't afford that. I mean, that's not we're there just to visit, really, to help in their isolation. And what we found is their families need help. Oftentimes, they're the breadwinner, and so their families need help just to put food on their table sometimes for transportation to, to go them. to visit them. Right. Attorney fees are... You, as we all know, really high. They don't get their own attorney automatically. And uh, and more than 80% of the people we visit don't have attorneys. And that is very important if they do want to have any chance of winning their case. It's very important to have an attorney. So um, they, most of them represent themselves. So, so there yeah. is And there's also bond fund. The bonds are so high. And that's how some people have gotten out um, is through bond, through community support and families helping to raise money. What I wanted to say, though, is some families do help, but many times the families don't know who are the, where they are or they just aren't, aren't able to help. Imagine. So what our fund does is that the money that is raised goes directly to support people that are in detention and their families. And also, after they're released or deported, we still are in touch with many people when they get deported and released, if they do. And so we can help them just get their new lives going, because oftentimes they have they just get dumped and they and they don't have any support then. So, so so what we do, we have um, our website is www.endisolation.org, and then slash direct support, and all the money will go to help the people and their families. Um, there also is a crowd crowdsourcing fund set up through GoFundMe, gofundme.com slash direct support. This is a 90-day thing. This other thing is a permanent <laughs> forever. We'll, we'll be raising money, and I'm the person in charge of this fund. So um, individuals or visitation programs themselves can apply for money through our program, $150 max per individual, $500 max per visitation program, and then we fund them right now. We were able to raise a few hundred dollars on Sunday. We already had a couple thousand dollars in the fund, so we've already helped helped some people. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a it's a win win. Now, <laughs> uh, while we're talking about the fund and the the, the legal fees, that I just wanted to know if, with the public interest component of UCI's law school, is Dean Chemerinsky um, is he finding some pro bono uh, or uh, leveraging pro bono or sending students uh, your way at all? Have you seen definitely, some? Definitely. Okay. We have Kudos worked to with them. him and, and with their immigrant law center, yes. Okay. Yeah, we... Stretching we, the dollars there. And some of the other university law schools also. And I imagine they are finding They're much fulfillment in what, what anything they do there. 
So we'll have to get we'll get some on people. on the show to talk about that too. But so so you said it's GoFundMe.com slash direct support. We'll get that in the summary. So okay, and the important one would be andisolation.org yes. slash direct support. Okay, yeah, because that that'll be a permanent thing. And um, and you have you given my email well, to people? You can, I'll give it away now. Right. <laughs> it'll, uh, it'll be included in the summary so people can read it's it. It's Jay Meslin at andisolation.org. J M E S L I N, and I'm happy to help any questions you have or to get you involved in uh, visiting with us. Yes, on the, those levels. And uh, Jan, I have stories too. Of <laughs> that's uh, sometimes those, stories. Yes, indeed. make it be for really powerful. They are powerful. And the stories for those of you just dropped in the show. Jan Meslin, my guest, is director of social change at Civic, the National Visitation Network, providing and uh, community presence and independent oversight of the U.S. immigration detention uh, system. And so uh, I thought it would be incredibly rich for us to walk through. Some of them are good endings. Some of them are not such good endings. So uh, maybe the sort of the, the a continuum of what uh, to, to personalize what you have witnessed and others in th- uh, your group. Yeah. Well, um, and we have made thousands of visits of over wow. the last three years. Uh, but I, I just want to talk about my own, please, because they're more, do do. more personal to me, and I'm not going to use uh, names, the, the correct names for most of these. But um, a young man that I visited for almost a year just recently got deported about one month ago to Mexico. He's only 21. He just turned 21 while he was in jail. And um, it was he and his mom living here, the two of them, and she's still here. And she's maybe going to end up moving back to Mexico, but they have been here for so many years, and her job is here. And so they're kind of lost, not knowing what to do. But this most wonderful young man that really touched my heart, and, you know, I, I, he became like a son over years, a long time. And now he lives down in um, Sinaloa, um, and he, he has an aunt down there, so that's helping. But he feels kind of lost. He considers himself a U.S. American. He's been here for more than 15 years, so... Anyway, that's one. <laughs> so he's deported, but I'm still in touch with him. Okay. And wow. there's another one, uh, a young woman, Costa Rican woman, who who I visited and other people visited her also. She has been released on $0 bond. I guess her they just thought she was so com- compelling of a case. Why do you think? What <clears throat> might have made that compelling so we can find those nuggets where we can make those cases bring them well to the she didn't commit a crime she was here for asylum the, her asylum was from the country of costa rica so maybe at first it got denied maybe because costa rica they think well everybody wants to be in costa rica but she has you know a sad story from there and, and you does say not anything go about back. it in general terms not really okay no. <laughs> okay um but she has now been released um, on bond, on $0 bond, but she meets with ICE every month, and she just recently got her ankle monitor off because they don't think she's a flight risk anymore. But she, um, she was actually at our, at our um, event on Sunday, and so it was wonderful to see her. I become a good friend with her, and, and I go to, she lives in San Diego now, and she's still working on her asylum appeal. Who knows, the asylum cases can take a long time because we just don't have enough immigration attorneys. Okay, and then the third one is um, Chris, who I visited previously in one of the, you know, because we've been doing this three years. I visited him for a few months. He also got deported to El Salvador, and I did lose touch completely with him. Oh. And he had told me he would write to me. It's one thing we do is write to people also. Surface mail Some is the people want to do that. Surface mail or are there emails? Surface mail. Yeah, okay. Surface mail. Because we uh, we we write to people all the time in the jails back and forth. Some people that's what they want to do rather than visit. But at any rate, um, I never heard from him, so I I really mm. worry about him and wonder if he died. He's in El Salvador, and he came here when he was only eight months old. Oh, geez. His parents brought him here at eight months, and they were they were leaving El Salvador during terrible times during the eighties because he was uh, twenty five when he got deported, and he had been that's here since he was eight months old. Wow, uh, his and whole life. His English is his his language and. So I don't know how he's doing. I hope he's still alive. And finally, Robert, um, who I visited more than two years ago at the Santa Ana City Jail. And recently he connected with me on Facebook. Wow. I didn't know what happened to him. but And I only visited him a couple of times because he got deported right after that. But he's, he's an activist now in Tijuana, helping dreamer moms and um, deported veterans. And, wow. And, yeah, I mean, now we're connected. I went to Tijuana recently and met up with him again. It was so wonderful to see him. I had only seen him in the jail setting just to give him a hug. And 
and this is kind of a neat story and I just saw I mean he's just he's doing amazing things helping people who are deported himself and um, it just so now I, I just it makes me feel so good <laughs> and I'm so proud to be his friend so we don't have tons of time but I yeah. can you give me a short rundown of how a veteran becomes deported because so sure. many veterans were able to get their papers in the run-up to the war against yeah. Iraq in 2003. So what happened to these Well, they do. Folks? They do. They they do. They are told they are going to become citizens. You know, right. they are. They are. Uh, they have. They're legal by going, going to war and finishing out their time with what's the word where you're their where duty, you, their term, where you're where you end it successfully. They you, what they aren't kicked out of the army or anything. You know, right, right. I can't remember what that's called. But anyway, honorary they get discharge. Out. Yeah, they have they have honorary. They're Honorable done with discharge. their time, mm-hmm. and then they come back and they have PTSD. Oftentimes, and they get in a little trouble. So they they commit a crime. They have a DUI. They have a drug possession or whatever it is. It's usually something. It's a crime, and then they get into this system, and they didn't automatically get citizenship. See, so they lose their green card, they lose all this, and they find themselves in deportation proceedings and get deported. And there's a whole group of them all over the world, but there's a lot in Tijuana. Oh, also on our uh, program on Sunday was the Detainee French Project with the Neighborhood Unitarian Universalist Church in Pasadena. They helped put on the program. It was actually their idea also to create this direct support fund. So we thank them. Wow. Also. Well, I actually, I want to know more about these deported veterans, and that might be yeah. a, an important Veterans Memorial Day sort of a program already. Oh, That's yeah. next week, but uh, okay. <laughs> we'll see who can, uh, if they're... Yeah, I'm glad to come back. Okay. I like have a, friends in Tijuana that work with the deported veterans. All right, so... Yeah. Uh, Next week, we'll uh, okay, so, or sometime. We're, we're, yeah, but I, it's very topical at that point. So, uh, well, so folks, you've got all the contacts. We'll put them on the summary. And as we said, the the funds that you all could contribute will help them pay for those atrociously high phone bills, legal aid, and necessities for tension, detention because they're in there. Nobody's in there bringing. The, if their pa- loved ones no. don't know where they are, nobody's bringing them any toiletries, any uh, detention sort of cash that they use for for the for necessities for pillows for (laughs) they don't for any so folks a little bit of money is going to go a long way to provide something so much and it's sort of a two-fold thing that that they can feel the support from somebody who's just anonymously contributed something and we're a small nonprofit that's just kind of doing what we can so thank you yeah well, I'm so glad that you could be on the number on the uh, the website for people to call about the fundraiser, too. I've got it here, 385-212-4842. And that it, number is that's in, ba- in San Francisco where Civic is based. We have two co-directors. Besides Christina Fiala, there's Christina Mansfield, and she's up based in San Francisco. So that's where that would go to her. Okay. So, yeah. and so anybody listening from around can uh, call in that way. Thank you. So it's Direct Support Fund, folks, that's uh, on the line. And I, I would like you to see if you could come back next week and take up with uh, Deport Veterans. Because I think a lot of us thought that once they were in the processing for yeah. their uh, landed residency, actual citizenship, we understood that that was a small token of appreciation for them that served yes. in uh, should be, uh, it? in combat active co- live combat and should be. then it's taken away because not everybody who's suffered PTSD is in line for a detention like uh, these mm-hmm. that are wavering so exactly. security folks means a lot of different things to a lot of different people so i want to thank you Jan Meslin she is the director of social change at civic as I said, they're advocating for those in detention and in isolated uh, all around the country. Thanks for joining me in studio. Thank you so much. Well, we'll be right back after a brief station break and have on Charlie Bleck to talk about the new legislation that's adopted the, it is the Gun Violence Restraining Order, adopted in the aftermath of the Isla Vista shootings that took place one year ago. That's coming up next. Uh, don't go away.
Welcome back to the show. That's Charlie Hayden's America the Beautiful, beautiful piece, I say. So now we're back uh, with Ask a Leader. My guest for this portion of the hour is Charlie Black. Uh, he, uh, since this Saturday, will mark one year since the shooting spree in Isla Vista, adjacent to the University of California, Santa Barbara campus, when gun prevention measures are on the move in our state legislature and beyond, I always count on Charlie Black and his wife, Mary Lee Black, to be in mobilization mode. Their own loss of their own son over two decades ago is a guiding principle for the importance of activism. The purpose of Charlie's return to the show on this day is to build public awareness about the new measure adopted last fall, which will take effect January 1, 2016. It is the Gun Violence Restraining Order. His editorial support of this measure appeared in this last Sunday's Orange County Register. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Charlie Black. Well, thank you, Claudia. It's always great to be able to chat with you. Oh, you know it's my pleasure, Charlie. And hello to Mary Lee. I think she's listening back there. And we'll, if, she can, if she wants to chime in any time, that's fine. But the last time, Charlie, that you and I talked about this, you were concerned at the, the UC Irvine vigil observing the loss of life at Isla Vista. You felt that your next move was to take up the legislative charge. You weren't sure you were going to get a lot of company right around the campus. You already had a legislative package ready after the Seal Beach hair salon shooting. So what were you, what had you put together and what was your timing all about after that vigil? Well, first of all, I do appreciate the fact that the UC Irvine people did put on an excellent vigil. Uh, what was frustrating for me when I talked to the organizers as I was there was that their only phrase was they wanted to show solidarity. They wanted to, quote, stand in solidarity with UC Santa Barbara. And while that's an excellent thought, in order for us to move forward and create a situation where this will never happen again, we have to think about what policy are we going to engage in so that we can create an atmosphere so that the shooter, Elliot Roger, will not have a gun or whoever may be in the future that shooter in Santa Barbara should never have had a gun, and fortunately, our state legislature was able to act in their, in our mind, record speed within a two- to three-month period to, when this bill was introduced to have it pass through and have Governor Brown sign it. So it's wonderful to say we are stricken, we are agonized, but we still have to look forward. What was the cause? How can we prevent in the future? That's the step we have to take. And the AB 1014, the Gun Violence Restraining Order Bill, is, a, in my mind, a major step forward to prevent these types of tragedies from happening in the future. Well, that was a rapid response. We've seen even a larger loss of life elsewhere, and we have nothing to show for that. What might you attribute that rapid response to? I mean, in all respects. Well, first of all, unfortunately, a couple of years ago, you may recall, we had a terrible shooting in Seal Beach at a beauty salon. I believe it's dubbed the Seal Beach 8. Um, and that was the catalyst in our mind to do the research. And there were a couple of states that have made preliminary steps in this area. So we had a tremendous amount of research and we available to us to be involved and uh, Fortunately, in California, folks were just to the point where enough is enough, and uh, that was a major catalyst. Uh, it's If you go up in the Santa Barbara area, it's such a beautiful, picturesque area, and the Isla Vista is so calm, and, and to have something like that where six people died and 14 others were wounded, and it's preventable, that was the tragedy. And, and the catalyst really was uh, Mr. Martinez, um, saying that, you know, we contacted the police. We had them go out, but because at that time our son had not been diagnosed or adjudicated as mentally ill, the bar was too high. They, their hands were tied. We have to do something so that these people who are in a dangerous crisis situation do not have access to these types of weaponry. And that's what the gun violence restraining order does, uh, Claudia. If a person now is in an elevated risk of violence, we don't have to worry about a diagnosis now of mental illness. And, in fact, 
we shouldn't worry about a diagnosis of mental illness because only 4% of those folks who are diagnosed as mentally ill are violent. So we don't need to stigmatize the entire mental illness situation. We now have a focus, and that focus is on the dangerous behaviors rather than the mental illness, and that's the key. Now, in your legislative involvement, you noticed that the Orange County GOP legislators were AWOL on support of this bill. Why didn't they see this as a game changer, do you think? You know, that is continually frustrating. I have uh, been involved and walked the halls up in Sacramento for, as you indicated, approximately two decades. And the frustrating part is, and what I didn't understand and I didn't get an answer, was that the National Rifle Association lobbyist in Sacramento was just livid and against this bill, but could not give us an explanation as to why. And what I have found, unfortunately, is that, especially here in Orange County, our Orange County uh, Republican state legislators will simply fall in lockstep with the National Rifle Association position, regardless of the merits of the bill and regardless of whether or not it's going to adversely affect their constituents. And quite frankly, um, I would love to have a response from a Orange County GOP legislative person as to why they could not support this bill. It is such a wonderful common sense public policy step forward that uh, I'm just very frustrated with their inability to independently think and to move forward and protect their own constituents. I mean, it is it is a way of the, you in educating one's constituents. You know, you could provide education, show yourself in a in a public affairs kind of function in supporting the bill. And but I guess this is the problem with this influence that NRA does try to sustain yeah, They over seem to feel that any bill that has the word gun in it, regardless of its merits, they're going to oppose. And in Orange County, um, well, we, the impetus was Isla Vista. One of the yes. major causes of death in Orange County is suicide, and suicide with a gun, and suicide with our older folks. And the bottom line is that if a person is in crisis, we have the opportunity for either a family member or law enforcement, either or, to address the courts, to explain what the situation is, and the court then would have the opportunity to issue a restraining order with a search warrant so that the police could go into the premise and remove the guns. We have due process involved in this, Claudia, because yes, yes. it is a court-initiated action. We have a judge who would review the facts. We have a judge who would make the order. and. The person would not be allowed to possess or purchase a gun until they can show that that risk has now passed. And that's the key. With law focuses on people experiencing a crisis or who have a history of violence or addiction to drugs and or alcohol. And I don't know how anyone can argue about keeping dangerous weapons out of dangerous hands. And in the case of the Isla Vista shooter, we could have gotten him some... Um, help. We could have gotten him some uh, people would be able to come in and, and be able to work with him and have treatment. And uh, it's just a terrible waste of human life when, when we can prevent something like this, Claudia. And the concern here is that at the shooter's age, he hasn't, um, it's not only that he has uh, some shortcoming. he had shortcomings in his uh, own sort of cognitive processing, but it's also at the age where he was at that young people at, or that are suicidal. He was suicidal, too. I mean, that was part of oh, the yes. uh, shooting. And unfortunately, and so, our young people are too impulsive. Yes, um, and that's the problem. Impulse, impulsiveness with a deadly weapon are a, a mix that is just horrific to consider. I had an opportunity to be on a number of panels with uh, medical experts, and there was a term that I had never heard before called the glow minute. And what it happens is when a person attempts a suicide, it then dawns on them that they've done a very, very stupid thing and they do want to live. And they dial 911 and if the attempted suicide is with uh, pills or slashing or whatever, there's a tremendous recovery rate and they go on to have a very productive life. 
If the option they choose is a loaded, unlocked gun available to them, Claudia, they're going to be 98% successful, and there'll be no 911 call. There will be simply be a lot of anger and a lot of frustration, and that person will be very, very dead. So whether we're talking about that person lashing out um, against a community or that person turning inwards and killing themselves, when we have that type of weaponry available, we have deadly consequences. And what this gun violence restraining order bill will do is it will issue a temporary restraining order and it will remove the gun. The, the person will be unable to purchase or possess a gun until the courts deem them no longer dangerous. And that's, that's the key factor here. Prevention is the key to moving forward and saving lives. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Charlie Bleck, local chair for the Orange County chapter of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence here on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the World Wide Web at KUCI.org. And another feature of uh, what happened in Isla Vista a year ago on this coming Saturday was that the law enforcement agencies did not uh, did not consider they did not consider looking for any kind of weapons. They just sort of did a sweep of the room. And we know from the, the coverage that the, the shooter was relieved that they didn't find any guns. So, but uh, this restraining order, it sort of creates a template. Do I understand, Charlie Black? That's that, correct. So the you sort bill, of like run down. The bill what, required our state judicial counsel to create forms so that either a family member or law enforcement has that initial access to our court system. And based upon a judge reviewing those facts and issuing that restraining order together with a search warrant, then law enforcement legally and is required to go into the premise and search for weaponry and remove that from the, from the premise. And that was the key. Uh, I remember that coverage also, Claudia. And I believe they just only knocked on the door and had a cursory type of conversation. If they had had an opportunity to go in and actually see the weaponry and remove it, uh, I believe that they had came to the conclusion that that particular horrific massacre would not have occurred. That's the key. We need to take and get dangerous weapons out of dangerous hands. Uh, also, I, I need to really focus on the fact that yes. We don't want to stigmatize those folks who are mentally ill because the majority of the people with mental illness will never be violent. That really what moved us forward and what I think is a tremendous policy issue here is we now focus on people experiencing the crisis. And whether they have a history of violence or addiction to drugs and or alcohol, that's the focus and that's where it needs to be. And I'm very pleased. I, I think this is a real game changer and I'm excited. What we have to do now, Claudia, is that we have to do grassroots. We have to get out there and beat the bushes so that folks are aware of this bill and will take advantage of it. Uh, we have an issue coming up just in the near future where our Judicial Council will ask for public comment on the forms. Okay. We need to make all of us, I mean, people say, well, uh, counselors and nurses and doctors and so on should be aware, and in my mind, Everybody should be aware because I think most importantly, a family member knows whether or not what the mental position is of that person in crisis. And they are now have access to our court system on a much lower bar, a much more practical bar than to have to try and adjudicate that person as being mentally ill, which was just too much of a burden to be able to overcome right. uh, previously. previously. The Judicial Council, how does the public get a, their public commentary into them? There will be a notice going out. In fact, we will be sending out a, a lot of, uh, there's not an exact date yet, but we will be publicizing it. And uh, what's more important is come January 1 of 2016 yes. is forms will be available that family members can have and review and fill out and have access to the courts that they never had that opportunity before. And um, I am absolutely convinced if they had had that opportunity, if the Martinez family had had that opportunity, yes. because they notified law enforcement, they pleaded with law enforcement that uh, their son and five others would still be alive, and the 14 more who were wounded would not be have would not have been shot. Well, the other thing that we all know is in the aftermath, there are so many people around the individual who became 
becomes the perpetrator, they all have so much data. They've observed the, that this person is in peril, is in crisis, and it's, uh, it looks like all the data that seems to be available after a, a shooting has occurred would help meet those four factors that demonstrate that a person is a risk. So that data doesn't sit around anymore. People have that petition that they can generate. From they can become activists on behalf of their family member, and that's the most important thing, is they can become activists, and there is a result that is a plausible, viable, practical result that they can obtain. They get the restraining order. The court handles that. The guns are removed from possession, and they are not allowed to have possession again until the dangerous crisis situation no longer exists. And, and that's so important, is that uh, impulse or – and we can, get, uh, we can get the help these folks need. We can get the counseling they need. They can move forward on a more practical basis. We just have to immediately remove that, that danger, that the impulse that – I mean – I guess we will never know uh, exactly what Elliot Roger was thinking when he went into Isla Vista and just started shooting at uh, just whoever. Uh, no target in mind, per se, that I'm aware of, and um, we just aren't going to have those kind of results, and that's what's important. Charlie, I'm so glad you're an attorney. You can tell us to, uh, wh how limited or uh, obligated is let's say, a, a University of California psychologist that is seeing someone who's coming more and more into crisis, are they, as a mandatory reporter, are they, are they able to use this restraining order and report that? No. The, the, we had, when, when the bill was being crafted, there were a number of different areas of, of in professionals that we discussed, and uh, school administrators and counselors were in that area, However, in order to create a passage in our state legislature, it was then narrowed to really? law enforcement and family members. Only. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm comfortable with family members because a counselor can alert and, and we can go move forward and so on. And intuitively, family members understand and know, and they search for avenues to be able to have resources to help their loved ones, and this is a, going to be a key tool to help them do that. Okay, but I, I, I'm thinking sometimes, Charlie, there are health care oh, professionals are, oh, that are healthcare, privy. Uh, health care people, yes, there are certain circumstances where they are obligated to report that, but that's the bar we don't need to have to reach here, Claudia. Right, the I bar we have to reach here is that in persons in crisis and that's where we need to be, and they're experiencing uh, a focus on having the, that behavior, that dangerous behavior, rather than the mental illness situation. Well, I wasn't thinking in terms of hiring the, the bar. I was thinking lowering it. If that there's it, more this, data uh, that there, lowers the bar absolutely. If, if the therapist that's in the school is in an institutional setting, if they're getting more data, maybe the family isn't quite up to what uh, how edgy. Well, they can certainly is, report so that to can. the family. Okay. Yes, but right. the. There's a different set of right. rules for that person versus this gun violence restraining order bill, yes. So maybe both of those create more of a net to catch this person in crisis. Yeah, no, the, the net is the fact that uh, we don't have to worry about having that person adjudicated as mentally ill. Uh, we can now focus on the behavior rather than the mental illness. And that, to me, is a very, very big key. So you've given us some help on how we can follow up with either public comment that people could, I guess, go to your website, the Orange County Brady Campaign Chapter website, that they can follow when the, uh, the Judicial Council will be seeking public comment. That's one more place we could go? That's exactly where we can go. And more importantly, uh, there's going to be a tremendous media surge the closer we get to January 1st, 2016. Actually, Claudia, you are on the cutting edge of this and being able to alert people on the front end because as the, we approach January 1 of next year, there's going to be a tremendous uh, surge of publicity for to create an awareness of the consequences of not taking advantage of this particular bill and the fact that it's there. And I can't help but think the success of this measure is we don't have any we ha we don't know that we're not having those uh shootings occur i mean the, the, it's sort of a negative that proves the the positive that you know this this could pare down but we'll never know how successful it is because 
we won't know that we're not getting well, we, reports we will, of shootings. Well, we over the last 20 years, we've done a survey, Claudia. Yes. And California has reduced its gun mortality rate by 52 percent which is 24% greater than the national average. And the reason we've been able to do that is because our laws in California are the strongest laws in the United States, and that's the key. Now, one of the problems is that the National Rifle Association uh, has dominated in the, at the federal level in the House of Representatives, and the CDC was, budget was severely right. cut when it tried to do background and evaluations and surveys on gun mortality, deaths, and so on. But we've been able to piece together from various sources, and we're very pleased with the fact that now 52% is a reduction is not 100%, so we still have a ways to go. But the bottom line is California's gun mortality rate death is 24% better than the rate in the United States, and we can attribute it directly to the strong gun laws that we've been able to create here in California. Well, Charlie, I'd like to know, is there um, any situation, that, a takeaway from how this legislation was adopted that could help deal with some of the other gun prevention? Yes. The, the whole key here is when this is fully implemented, people will begin to understand that prevention is the key to our success in ending this gun violence epidemic. And as you indicated just previously, Claudia, prevention is a very difficult concept to prove, but when they can experience the fact that guns were removed from dangerous hands and the gun mortality rate will continue to decrease, there we go. It's like um, we've been able to show that with uh, airbags and uh, all of the various safety devices we build into cars that the mortality and injury rate there continues to decrease. It will, it will show and it will continue to decrease. And uh, the key in moving forward is keeping these dangerous weapons out of dangerous hands. Bravo, man, I say. So I want to thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. And it's good to be at the cutting edge as far as the adoption on January 1st, the California Gun Violence Restraining Order. My guest, Charlie Bleck, is one half of the Bleck Power Couple and leading Orange County chapter of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence. Charlie, thank you so much for being back on the show. Well, thank you for the opportunity and your very kind words. Okay. you All the best to both of you. Thank you. Well, that wraps our show for today. We'll uh, end with Once Upon a Time in the West. I just had to leave on this note. We'll talk to you next week with hopefully some delightful, some thought-provoking uh, veterans coverage on Memorial Day following. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>